This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering questions, questions about the Bible, questions about our common faith, what we believe, why we believe it. If you've got something going on in your life, I'll do the best we can to help you with that as well. All we need is for you to call us on this last day of our week, 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send the questions in to us that way. If you're driving in your car on this beautiful Friday, uh, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app uh, using the hands-free feature of your phone. Just hit one button. It's a call now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Let's close out the week with some of your great questions. Hey, we had a great uh, graduation ceremony last night. Uh, thank those of you who were praying for us and for the kids. They did a great job. And then, as is our tradition here at Calvary Chapel, uh, we're going to let the graduates, they were seniors last night, but they're graduates today, and they're going to be addressing the church. And we always felt like this was important, you know, with a, a free school. Um, and it's a great education, a vigorous education. Um, we, we figured this is the best way to let the church know what they're getting for their money. And so on Friday night, uh, after graduation, we let them share their heart uh, for a few minutes. We got uh, nine of them who graduated last night, so they'll be sharing their hearts with the body. It's their opportunity to say thank you to the body who supports uh, the free school uh, with their offerings to the church here at Calvary Chapel. So I'm looking forward to that tonight. It will be live streamed at calvarysa.com. So if you are interested in seeing some really, really great young kids, they're all nervous when they're speaking in front of people, but they're great kids have a great heart. That would be a great opportunity for you to do that. Okay, let's get to some questions, and we'll wait for your phone calls. Uh, I cut off a question because of time. I want to start with it again today. This was Priscilla's question from uh, Wednesday. And she says, or said, I'm concerned about the rejection of biblical roles for women and the connection it has to accepting the LGBTQ agenda. May I have your thoughts? Um, Priscilla, um, I think any time you reject biblical roles, it doesn't matter whether it's for men or for women, 
uh, I think then you're going to open yourself to all kinds of things. I have something I say here to the church all the time, that if you don't believe in what's true, you'll believe anything is true. And um, I think if you start tearing pages out of your Bible, uh, women who want to be pastors, for example, or women who don't want to submit to the leadership at home of their husbands, I think it's really easy to start rejecting other things. And uh, the LGBTQ movement in our country has gained a lot of momentum, and they're looking for openings. Remember, the devil is prowling around uh, waiting for the exact moment to devour And uh, I think when we start being disobedient, we start neglecting or outright rejecting some of the things that the Bible is really clear on. I think we've given the enemy that opportunity. It always seems silly to me, Priscilla, to have um, um, to to give the devil, who's infinitely more powerful than I am, to give him uh, any assist in pounding me to pieces. So. Uh, what we want to do is want to be as obedient as we possibly can and uh, understand that that I want to say this very clearly because it's important. Once we begin disobeying or rejecting biblical doctrines, then the world is going to win us over. And that's exactly what's happened. One of the really tragic things that I've seen over my 25 years here at Calvary Chapel is is uh, people who started out so strong and they eventually got dragged away by the enemy in, in, in these unbiblical doctrines and now they're embracing all kinds of things. You know, the old God is love and my God wouldn't punish anybody for loving someone kind of uh, sophomoric arguments. And uh, I think that has a lot more to do with accepting the LGBTQ agenda than anything else. It's not just the one thing about rejecting women's roles. It concerns me, Priscilla, that there are so many um, female pastors, um, and yet um, they don't answer to me. They're going to answer to God. Hope that makes sense to you. Here is a question that was sent in by an anonymous doctor. Um he or she says, do you think medical professions should use preferred pronouns with their patients, even though I'm a Christian? This is a tough one. Um, um, I'm generally, um, Dr. Anonymous, I'm generally in favor of calling people what they want to call, what they want to be called. Um, but, but we've also got to take a stand for the truth. Uh, as a doctor, you're seeing a patient. And um, I think it's important to address that patient biologically. Um, we, we've had this situation at Malta Medical. It's a, the um, family practice doctor's office that we have here. It, like the school, is also supported 100% by the offerings of uh, our church. Uh, and we've had people who come in and they will say, well, I, I want to be called, um, obviously somebody's medically, a, biologically a male, I want to be called her. That's my preferred pronoun. Or they'll use the, the pronoun they. And um, um, our doctors just say, look, what's on your driver's license or on your birth certificate uh, until we see differently, that's what we're going to call you. That's what we're going to refer to you. And I think that gives us an opportunity uh, as medical professionals, them, not me. I'm not a medical professional. But it gives them an opportunity to, to, to share uh, I think those are huge open doors. What makes you think you're a woman? 
If the answer is, well, I feel like a woman, I know inside that's my true self, um, they can demonstrate that that's a rebellion against the God who created you. So I, I, I wouldn't use preferred pronouns. If somebody comes in and they want to I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I had to take a drink of water. Uh, if they want to be um, called by a, a name that's feminine, I would have no problem with that. But I wouldn't participate in the lie of calling someone who is obviously male as a female. That's the best I can do with that one, Doctor. Thank you for the question. Lots of people are going to be praying for you now. Uh, here is a question from Paul. He says, are you going to provide voters' guides for the people in your church in this election year? If not, why not? Paul, I never do. I never will. My job is to teach people about Jesus. That's what we're here in the church to do. And one of the problems, one of the reasons that the church has lost so much power, and I'm talking about the evangelical church, we've lost so much power because we've over, hyper even, politicized what the church stands for and who the church is. My job is not to steer people to the Republican uh, voting booth. My, my job is not to bash one candidate and endorse another. Uh, my opinion is my opinion. It's between me and God and the, and the voting booth when we're there. Uh, but um, uh, it, it would be the most arrogant of all things, Paul, for me to even presume that I would suggest to the people at Calvary Chapel how they should vote. Um, our people love the Lord. Um, they know who he is. It's their job to vote their conscience, uh, consistent with their worldview. And um, I'm confident they're going to be there. You know, one of the things, and Paul, you don't say which side of this thing you're on. Usually these questions are are coming from people who are, 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 are conservatives, um, sometimes very, very conservative. Um, but I won't even presume that. But, um, again, the church's job is to teach people about Jesus. And if I teach them who Jesus is, then Jesus will change their hearts. And you and I, we have to remember that not all believers, people that we're going to be in heaven with forever, not all believers are Republicans. Nor are they Democrats. If you're a Republican, Paul, there's going to be some Democrats in heaven that you're going to have to love for eternity. Forever and ever. Um, and we got to know that. People have different worldviews. They come from different life experiences. And the minute we sit in church and suggest for, for even briefly that this is the way someone ought to vote, we're isolating half of the people who need to hear about Jesus. I don't know why we would do that. You know, Paul, church is not our church, but church has spent a lot of money trying to attract people to get them into the church. Why would we chase them away with that? We need to remember that when we politicize our pulpits, we are weakening the body of Christ. We're not strengthening the body of Christ. We're weakening the body of Christ. Now, two things I'd like to comment on, just sort of semi-related to that, Paul. So if you'll 
uh, excuse me for doing this. One of the things is I would ask everybody to pray uh, all weekend for um, the, the pastors in California. Um, um, as of right now, there are more than 3,000 churches that have uh, committed to defying the orders of the government, the governor, the state of California, uh, and they're going to open with church as usual uh, this coming Sunday, May 31st. Uh, they need our prayers. Um, you know, the, the the governor, knowing this was going to happen, took a really smart step. Not a godly step, but a smart step. He said, okay, we're going to let churches open. We we understand they're essential, but they, they're, they're not allowed to have more than 25% of their capacity in the building. That's impossible. Churches can't run that way. You can't sell tickets. You can't have reservations in church. Nobody's going to turn somebody away. Um, uh, they feel like the governor's sort of kicked them to the corner and refused to answer their questions. And so they took matters in their own hands. And I think this is a reasonable, and I would add godly, act of civil disobedience. And um, church is as safe, if not safer, than being in a Walmart or a Sam's Club or any other type of big store, Um, and yet somehow the church in California especially has been singled out. I feel bad for them because we've been open now, I think, four four Sundays, and uh, uh, this will be their first Sunday back together, and um, believe me, we know California needs Christians and needs them strong, so uh, Paul uh, and everybody else, please be praying for them, and I'll give you an update um, that, that some of my friends from there will will kind of fill me in on Sunday afternoon. So I would appreciate that very, very much. Paul, don't let your outlook be political. Let your uplook be to Jesus. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Uh, Mark asks, Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts on the impeccability of Jesus? For those of you who don't know what that means, uh, that is the, the, the theological question, could Jesus have sinned? Was he... Impeccable or impeccable? And uh, if he was impeccable, it means that Jesus could not have ever sinned. Now, Mark, uh, I think this is really clear. I also happen to believe this is one of the essentials of our Christian faith. If Jesus had the capacity to sin, we would all be lost. In him is light, John says. There's no darkness at all. Uh, He's not like you and me. Jesus was tempted to sin in all ways like we are. But he wasn't tempted by sin the same way you and I are. You know, when when I'm tempted with something that I know isn't right, but I want to do it, maybe it's just something like losing my temper or or, or any other sin or temptation that you can imagine. Um, you know, my flesh is likes the temptation. I'm not going to be tempted by something that I don't enjoy, that my flesh doesn't enjoy. But Jesus, you see, Filled with the Spirit, without measure, Jesus with no carnal nature, no sin nature, isn't like you and he isn't like me. So Mark, if Jesus could have sinned, then we're all lost. Jesus did not have the capacity to sin. So he was impeccable. Those who would say, well, then it doesn't matter uh, he hasn't been tempted like we are. They don't understand. Jesus was tempted to a greater degree 
than any of us will ever experience. I don't think any one of us has ever had the devil tempting us face to face like Jesus did after 40 days going without food and water. So it's really important that we understand that, Mark, that Jesus could not have sinned. Uh, sin was anathema to him. Um, I wish it was anathema to more of us. So I think this is an important doctrinal position. The impeccability of Jesus, I think, is is uh, clearly what the Bible teaches. So Mark, I hope that answers your question. Well, our phones are quiet on this Friday thus far, so 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630, I'm sorry, 630-5757. Here's a question from Maria. Are our loved ones in heaven protecting us from bad things happening to us? Uh, Maria, the answer is no. I know that sounds uh, so comforting. Well, you know, my mom is in heaven. She's looking down on me and she's going to keep bad things from happening. No, your mom, if it is your mom you're talking about, she's in heaven and she's looking straight into the eyes of Jesus. He has 100% of her attention. You know, in heaven, there's going to be no more tears. You'll wipe the tears away. There'll be no more tears. If she was looking at us from heaven, there'd be a lot of tears still. No, so, Maria, they're not protecting us. That's sort of a a superstitious thing that somehow provides comfort to us at the moment. Uh, It's simply not true. Um, I will tell you this. The one who is looking down from heaven upon you, the one who will keep you in his hands is Jesus himself. You see, he can be in two places at the same time. Our loved ones in heaven certainly can't be. And believe me, if uh, you know, the older I get, the closer to heaven I get, I don't want to look at earth. I'm ready to be out of here. Things are getting so difficult. There's so much pain and so much misery. I don't want to look down here. I want to look into those eyes that are blazing in holiness. I want to hear that voice that sounds like many rushing waters. I want to be able to look at his sash, the golden sash. And we'll be doing that for like a bazillion years and then we're only getting started. So, Maria, don't look to departed humans for protection. Look to Jesus. One other thought, Maria, and I don't know if this is what's motivating the question, but bad things happen to everybody. Bad things in this fallen world happen to um, believers and unbelievers alike. I'm just thinking about this horrible incident in Minneapolis. Um, You know, a, a man's life was taken from him by someone who was supposed to protect him. I want you to think about that for a moment. I'm old enough that I was raised to respect police officers and know that if I was ever in trouble, I could go to a a cop and, and he would protect me. And you know, by and large, that's still true. We've got wonderful police officers here at our church and and I know that some of them would give their lives to protect me. 
But here was a man who was hired to protect and serve. And while people watched the brazenness of this crime, I just read before I went on the air that he was charged with murder, this this particular policeman. Um, in the open, knowing he was being filmed, with people surrounding him, pleading with him to let him go. The guy's dying, he's dying. And he was unmoved. Mark this, Paul writes to Timothy, in the last days, times will be perilous. And he describes this type of thing. We're in the last days, Maria, and to everybody else listening, we're in the last days. Bad things are going to happen, they're going to keep happening. Jesus will be with you in every one of them. Thank you for the question, Maria. Here is a question I can't answer from Jeffrey. Jeffrey, this is, uh, I get asked things like this a couple of times a year, and it's just um, almost impossible. I'll try it. says, Jeffrey says, uh, what is the best part about being a pastor and the worst? Um, Jeffrey, I don't think there is a worst. I think I think the the hardest times as a pastor always deals with other people's pain. It's I don't know, eighteen years ago now I went to the doctor and the doctor said, oh, Your blood pressure's a little high. Are you under are you under stress? And I said, No, I'm a pastor. I deal with other people's stress. Uh, and, and watching other people's lives fall apart, Jeffrey, is, a, is a, a painful thing. It's not a worst thing. Um, uh, it's just a painful thing. And it's painful because you love these people. And you see the enemy having his way with them. And you see people that started well. I mean, that's uh, excruciating pain. It's, it's hard to quantify just how deeply that affects me. Uh, the best part about being a pastor is the people. Uh, this Sunday, Jeffrey, um, I'm doing a special message um, because it's our 25th birthday as a church, May 31st, 1995, is when we started Calvary Chapel of San Antonio, the very first Bible study in Mark chapter 1. And for 25 years, I've watched people fall in love with Jesus. For 25 years, I've watched people who were just an absolute mess become precious, precious children of God fruitful, bountifully so. And it's it's just been an amazing thing. I'll tell you one of the best things about being a pastor. Last night I watched uh, one of my pastors who was the keynote speaker at our graduation. And he just he did such a wonderful job. One of the best commencement speeches I've ever heard. Uh, and he encouraged and he exhorted and and I must have been smiling like a stuck pig. I mean, I was, I was so proud of him. I was overflowing. And and I've had a small part in watching that man grow. And the feeling of pride, a godly pride, was overwhelming. Now multiply that by the numbers of people that we've had over the years. I've gotten to see that occur many, many, many times. I've seen marriages that were completely broken be gloriously restored. I've been able to dedicate babies of people that I dedicated as babies. It's just an amazing job, Jeffrey. 
the best part about being a pastor is knowing that God is smiling with you, that he's with you. Somebody said, what do you do for a living? My response would be, I get to tell people about Jesus. And when we do that, when we really understand that, it's all good. It's all good. Yeah, there's some heartbreak. There's tragedy. But I'll be like Job for a moment. Shall we accept only the good from God and not the bad? That was a good Job, by the way, before he started asking questions. So I just think it's all good. I love teaching. I love being around the people. Uh, I love that they love me. That's an amazing thing to me. Nobody loved me before I got saved. Paula hung in there with me, but she didn't like me. But now people actually like and love me. And it really is the greatest job I could ever imagine. I I wouldn't know what to do. Um, Somebody asked me if I was considering retiring last week. And, and, you know, I would be under more stress if I wasn't doing what I do than the stress I'm under doing what I do. I can tell you one thing that I don't like about it is I don't like the idea that you got to deal with money. Uh, we don't ask for money here, Jeffrey, but um, I, I just wish we could, we could do this job um, with, with only one thing in mind, drawing people to Jesus, money would never be an object. Hope that helps. Thank you, Jeff, for the question. We've got 30 minutes left in the week, and we would love your questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. It's the word to stand in for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at pastorronkslr at gmail.com. That's pastorronkslr at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half, the last half of our program today. 340-9585. Here is a question that came in from Jared. How can Christians reconcile being against abortion but for capital punishment. Jared, that's the easiest question I ever get asked. I personally, I don't want you to take this personally, but personally, I think this is a dishonest question because the answer is so obvious. We are against abortion because abortion is murder. And God hates murder. Whoever sheds the, the life of man, his life will be taken from him. That came from God. We are also, Jared, pro-victim. And when somebody is murdered, there's a whole bunch of victims, and God is just. And we can't just turn our eyes to justice. We are for capital punishment, because capital punishment, codified both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, was established by God himself. Now, the reason I always say this is a dishonest question is because anybody, any five-year-old, Jared can tell the difference between an innocent baby being murdered in the womb 
being deprived of the right to breathe, to have a life at all, and a murderer who takes somebody else's life and causes pain and torment for their family members. Think about that for a moment. If you can't tell the difference between somebody who willfully goes and takes a human life from a an infant in the womb whose life is taken from them without a chance. I never say people are innocent, but babies in the womb, they're innocent, and that life is completely snuffed out. Jared, how many preachers do you think have been murdered in the womb? How many brilliant scientists, research scientists, maybe maybe babies that would have grown up to have the cure for cancer? Or maybe the next great artist or the next great poet? How many of those never had a chance at life? I can tell you in my church, I've got a bunch of of uh, women who have babies and, and children that have grown uh, who, who almost ended up having their life taken by the act of abortion. And I see these moms and think, well, can you imagine if you'd ended that life? And, of course, the child is a growing or grown is an absolute treasure. Jared, if you can't tell the difference between the innocent life of a child, an unborn child being taken, and the life of a murder being taken, I, I'm, I pity you. I worry for you. I worry about you. Consider those things, please. Here is a question from Dylan. What role should churches play in combating climate change and pollution? Dylan, I'm going to answer this question the same way I answered the question earlier about voters' guides. It's not our job to play any role at all. Our job is to teach people about Jesus. Our job is to introduce people to Jesus. Here's what I can tell you about climate change and pollution. Jesus is holding this world together. You know the hysteria that we hear all the time regarding climate change. The world's only got 12 years left and unless you do something and it's just, it's, uh, it's become a religion. Climate change has become a religion, a bad religion, a false religion, but a religion nonetheless. Here's what the Bible tells us. That this world will be here when Jesus returns. The very specific area in Jerusalem when he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives in Revelation chapter 19. It will still be here. That means this earth is still going to be here. It's not going to explode. Jesus is holding it together. It has to be here for him to come back to it. That's why I say it's so easy to be a Christian when you consider all of these things that the rest of this world is freaking out over. We don't have to worry about these things. Jesus has it. 
Now, should we be good stewards of the environment? Of course we should. Individually, it's our job. We shouldn't litter. We shouldn't purposely do But, But to, to have a cause that, that doesn't have the name Christ is antithetical to what the Bible teaches us. Our job, our cause, ought to be winning the loss to Jesus. So give to God what is God's, what's God's you are. Let God take care of the things that he's responsible for. When a church gets involved in these so-called social justice issues, we have forsaken our calling, the calling given to us by God himself. So, do I hate pollution? Yeah, I hate all the allergens here in South Texas. I never had any allergies till I got here. And it took me a long time being here before they started. Uh, so, I wish all that stuff would go away. Well, one day that's going to happen. So, our role, we have no role in combating climate change other than individually to be good citizens, good stewards. But remember, Dylan, if you're cause is anything other than Jesus Christ and sharing him, Christ crucified and risen from the dead, to return again in these last days. If you have any cause in life beyond that, you're the one who's missing out. So that's very important for you. You're the one who's missing out. Here is an anonymous question. Um, We are considering foster care. Our hearts break for Uh, the older kids especially, but should Christians dive in and help out? And I I assume, Anonymous, that by diving in, you mean should you uh, be a willing and active foster parent? Um, And and my answer would be an emphatic yes. I won't mention any names um, here, but but, uh, there are just two families that instantly come to mind when I see this. And in both cases, um, the families... Um, getting involved first, God just putting it in their heart, um, fostering kids, and then wanting to keep those kids and eventually leading to adoption. And those children's lives have been changed forever as a result. Forever. Uh, we have a, a, a one young girl, she's just cute. It's, it's, there's actually three siblings. And uh, I remember the very first time I saw the oldest of the three. And there was just no light in her at all. Uh, She came from a very, very broken family, a bad situation. She was very, very young. But even very young, there was just no life. There was no joy. She just was dark. Um, Today, just a couple of years after the adoption, This is the happiest child you'll ever see. Beautiful, bright, always with a smile. And she has a sister and a brother. Same thing has happened to them. It's because God put it into somebody's heart to do for those children what God did for us. He adopted us. And um, another family. Um, They adopted two siblings. Uh, who um, were older, one of them in particular. Um, And I watched this young man receive all kinds of awards 
at our banquet a week ago. And this is a kid that never had a chance. And now he knows he's loved by God. He loves God. He knows he's got parents in his home who love him and who will protect him. It's an amazing thing. Another family in our church, they were really struggling getting pregnant. They wanted to be a, a, a mom and dad. They had a bunch of miscarriages, and so they adopted a child and found out that this child had siblings and adopted them, so they have four of them. And as soon as that happened, they found out that she was pregnant. She had a baby. And you see what God has given those children a chance at. It's, it's an amazing thing. So I am a big fan of foster care, and uh, especially, and I don't mean to make you feel guilty if this isn't the direction God is leading, but especially those independent adoption. These are kids that have been passed around, kids that have no future, and as a Christian anonymous, you have the opportunity to give them a hope and a future, the same thing that God gave you when you were born again. So yeah, dive in, help out, and just see how the Lord blesses. And by the way, Anonymous, if you ever want to send us uh, an email, you can do it at questions at calvarysa.com, where this one came. Um, uh, if you want to give us some information, uh, how to contact you, and if you'd like uh, any of those people that I spoke about, the parents, to talk uh, to you about it, they would be more than happy to do that. We've actually got a foster care uh, ministry here at Calvary Chapel. I'd be more than thrilled to refer you to to those families. That would be really, really, really a blessing. Thank you, Anonymous. 340-9585. Here's another Anonymous question. How can parents encourage sexual purity in high school age kids when everything around them is just the opposite? Anonymous, the answer is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all they can do. And here's what you need to understand. And I think a lot of parents, especially church parents, uh, they, they, they kind of labor under a misconception. You know, we think, oh, I've raised my kids in church. We've taught them about Jesus. We make them go to Sunday school, whatever it is. Your kids are only going to pursue sexual purity if they love Jesus, Period. Period. If they don't love Jesus, they're going to fall. It's that simple. I know parents say, no, not my kids. No, your kids are no different than everybody else's kids. But if they love Jesus, he's the one who will keep them pure. Just like Jesus is the one that keeps you from sinning. He will keep them from sinning, not because he refuses to give them any latitude or any choice in the matter, but because he's going to keep them close to himself. And they've got to love Jesus. If they don't love Jesus, they're going to sin. And sexual sin is what happens in a world that has rejected Jesus Christ. Now, you, mom and dad, I don't know whether it's the mother or the father who's writing this question, but here's what you can do. You can follow Jesus with all of your heart. Let your kids see that you're walked by faith is invigorating, that it's that it's exhilarating. Show them by your example what walking with Jesus has done for you. Also show them what you walking with Jesus has done for them. They'll grow up in a home where they know they're loved, they know mom and dad love Jesus, 
Uh, They'll see mom and dad trust Jesus. When other people are falling apart, our faith stands firm. And then they're going to want your Jesus when they're old enough to start making their own choices. But I can promise you, encouraging uh, sexual purity doesn't come by enforcing rules. Obviously, you're going to have insist on godly living in your home. You can't make your children believe, but you can say, here are the rules. You can watch your kids closely, and in fact, you're supposed to. But here's the thing you have to understand. If your kids are not born-again Christians in love with Jesus, they're going to sin. That's why you need to watch them even more closely. But make sure that your Jesus is real to them. Make sure that your Jesus is attractive to them. And then when they start getting tempted, they're going to have the tools to be able to say no to their flesh and yes to Jesus. You're right that everything around in our world is very sexual and I can't imagine what it would be like raising junior high and high school age kids in this day and age apart from Christ. But if you love Jesus, they're going to see you love Jesus and that's going to help them love Jesus. Mom, Dad, you've got to be able to say to your Sons and daughters, follow me as I follow Christ. If you can do that, then your kids will withstand the temptation. If not, they're going to be just like all of the other kids, doing what the other kids do. Can I say one other thing, just because I thought about it, Anonymous? Um, You cannot let your children date unbelievers. I don't know how old your kids are now, but as they grow, you cannot let them date unbelievers. Unbelieving kids have sex. Period. And if you let your believing sons or daughters date unbelievers, guess what? Your kids are going to end up having sex too. So here's what you do. You trust the Lord. And you follow Jesus. And tell them that you insist on their behavior representing you. And hopefully they'll get saved. Hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I think we're inside about ten minutes now. So if you are going to call in, you better do it quickly. Here is a question that came from Dwayne. Dwayne says, "What's the difference between a pastoral call and a teaching calling?" Um, Dwayne, I, I dealt with this um, dealing with uh, our, our. We're in First Timothy in our Sunday morning studies. Not this Sunday, but we have been and will be next, starting next week. Um, if you're called to be a pastor, you also have to have the gift of teaching. I believe there is a teaching gift that isn't related to a pastoral calling. So um, if you're a pastor, you've got to, what did Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep, tend my flock, feed my sheep. Um, that's caring for people. You've got to love people. Uh, you also, to love them effectively, you've got to have the gift to teach. You've got to love your Bible. You've got to devour it. You've got to be able to rightly divide it. And you've got to be able to communicate it in a way that, that, that will translate into other people's lives. Now, that's a gift of the Holy Spirit. And if you're called to be a pastor, you're called to, to teach as well. However, you can be called to teach and not be called into a pastoral role. And I think that's important because there's a lot of really good teachers. We had a a teacher here at, at our church for 13 years. He actually, we ordained him as pastor. He was the, the founding pastor of our school. 
Um, but his gift really was teaching, and he was wonderful at it. But he was not all that great with people at times. So he could teach, and he did so effectively, but people were challenged for him. So I think that's the biggest difference. And again, there are opportunities for teachers, people with the gift of teaching, um, individual counseling, um, um, just just Bible studies in, in sort of a classroom setting. Uh, but a pastor has got to live and die with the people. The pastor has got to love the people that God entrusts to him. And you take a deeper call in their well-being um, their walk with Jesus matters a lot to you. And, and, you know, if you're called to be a teacher, you'll teach. It'll be done. If you're called to be a pastor, you're never done. Your heart will break continually and your heart will be filled with joy continually. I know that sounds impossible to have both things. But, you see, that's just the life of a pastor. Good question, Dwayne. Thank you very, very much. Richard wants to know, uh, Pastor Ron, how should I understand the First Timothy passage about pastors and deacons managing their household well? Um, Richard, this is another place we just finished recently in our Sunday studies in First Timothy. Um, we, we need to manage our families well, our household well. That does not mean that we can make them be believers. But managing means giving them direction. Managing means setting an example for them. To manage them means to be consistent with discipline and with encouragement. So if I'm managing my family well, if I have a son or a daughter who is living a rebellious life, then that son or daughter is going to be disciplined and going to be disciplined consistently. In love, but certainly consistency. You know, you can't let kids get away with the behavior just because, well, I'm not going to believe. I'll give you an example. Um, we have people with grown teenagers and uh, we say, well, this son doesn't want to go to church or this daughter doesn't want to go to church. And you know, I just don't feel like I should force them to go. That's mismanaging your family. If they live in your house, then they abide by your rules. And here's the rules. People in this house go to church and you're going to go. You're going to behave. Again, I can't make you believe. I understand that. But you're going to be in church. If they're doing things they ought not to do, you can't let them stay out late. You can't subsidize their sin. That's mismanaging your house. And there are a lot of pastors whose kids are infamous for rebellion. And I've seen a lot of churches be devastated by a pastor's lack of consistency in disciplining their own children. They won't discipline other people, but, but they won't discipline their own children. And it's really important because that's to mismanage your family. One other thing, not just talking about kids here, uh, Richard, but a pastor has to manage his wife. Now, I know a lot of times women resent being managed, but uh, hear my heart here. This is what I mean. Um, a husband in a home can't overlook his wife's deficiencies or her faults or her sins. You know, husbands and wives are partners in the work God has set before them. And if partners are going different directions, Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? How in the world 
Can you walk in the same direction if you've got different agendas? Husbands and wives need to be in the same church. Husbands and wives need to be in the Word together. You need to pray together. If you're doing those things, then you can follow Jesus together. But if you're not, then you're not managing your household well. And I tell my pastors here all the time that if their marriages go sideways, they step out of being a pastor. They fix their marriages, then we can bring them back. But but it's so important to understand that without a godly marriage, uh, a man is disqualified from being a, a pastor. And um, in the, the First Timothy passage, the same thing is true with deacons as well. So I hope that makes sense to you, Richard. Thank you very, very much. Um, We're inside three minutes, so it looks like we're going to go the whole show without a phone call today. Um, Here's an anonymous criticism of me. I think you should think the best about people and the world we live in. You seem very negative about the future sometimes. Uh, Anonymous, I'm, I'm more positive about the future than anybody you've ever met. Jesus is coming soon. And then our future's bright. Paula has these uh, a pin that she wears. They're, they're little sunglasses. And whenever she wears them, people always remark, because it's a really cute pin. And, and they'll say, oh, you've got sunglasses on. And she goes, yes, my future's so bright, I wear sunglasses at night. I'm the most positive person about the world and the future you've ever seen. It's just not the people in this world or the kind of positivity that you may share for this world. Things aren't going to get better. All you got to do is read 2 Timothy chapter 3. And that's just one place. There are others, the letters to the Thessalonians. But, but things are going to get worse. All you have to do is look around at the world we live in. We, I mentioned the, 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 the incident in Minnesota. Is our world getting better? Minnesota is burning down. You think things are getting better? We live in a world that's being ravaged by this pandemic. That's not getting better. Paul says, in my flesh is no good thing. There's no one righteous, no one who seeks God. What's bright about that? But you see, Anonymous, we have the answer for that. And the answer is Jesus. And you have the opportunity, if you just sort of take your head out of that sand and look up, you've got the opportunity to be used by God to change the direction people's lives will take for time and eternity. So we've got to be realists. At the same time, we have the only hope that exists. So here's what I know about the world. It's being destroyed. It's, it's, it's turning to godlessness. But our future, because Jesus is coming soon, and we need to be ready. Be careful. Don't find yourself a positive news, positive thinking church, because it's only going to get you in more trouble. Hey, thanks for the week, except for today. We've had a lot of phone action and lots of good questions. It is an honor and a privilege to do this show for you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Have a wonderful week, so God. Hey, pray for us. It's our 25th birthday on Sunday, and I'm really, really proud of that. See you next week. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. 
The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh,